if you go to Granville Island here, salmon is from here and oysters are from here. Everything else, all the fish on sale in this Granville Island fish market is imported. Imported from Norway, imported from New Zealand, imported from God knows where. The supply is not any more local. That's Dr. Daniel Pauly, professor of marine biology at the University of British Columbia and the leading expert on the state of the world's fisheries. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. Today, we're very lucky to be talking to Daniel Pauly. Fish is the last wild catch, the last animal food source that we hunt and eat en masse from the wild. But Daniel Pauly warns that we are rapidly approaching the end of that, the end of fish. Because of industrial fishing methods, because of government subsidies of multinational fishing operations, and all of that now compounded by climate change. The French-born Canadian marine biologist has dedicated his long and award-winning career to improving the data that's used to understand global marine stocks. This is the principal aim of the Sea Around Us initiative that he helped to found at UBC. More accurate data helps better pinpoint where fisheries are collapsing and how best to protect them with ocean reserves, government regulation, and a shift from industrial fishing back to smaller scale traditional inshore fishing. We discuss all that and what lessons have and have not been learned in the collapse of Newfoundland's once thriving cod fishery. You'll hear a lot of criticism from Daniel Pauly about the DFO in this talk. That's the acronym for the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So without further ado, here's Daniel Pauly. So Dr. Daniel Pauly, thank you so much for coming on Canadian Geographic's Explore podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure too. Great. I want to start with sort of a big and perhaps broad question, um, just about the overall state of our fisheries in Canada and globally, and and also this concept you have that we're sort of cascading towards an end of fish if we continue using <laughs> using these industrial fishing methods that we use around the world. And so, how would you how, just give us the sort of the the state of our fisheries? Basically, fisheries, and I I will start generalizing and then go to Canada. Uh, fisheries have an old history, uh, probably hundred thousands of years. But the a new era began in 1880 when steam trawlers were deployed around the British Isles. Because for the first time, uh, not the wind and not rowing became the, 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 the means of moving, uh, moving gear, but uh, it was fossil energy. And it was possible then to punch into into marine ecosystem in with a force that was never that never existed before, and that mode of fishing with using fossil energy was so strong that within a decade or two, the the fish in coastal waters of Britain were literally gone, and they had to go further offshore. Thus began an expansion, which finished about in the nineties in the end of the twentieth century. Because since then, the industrialized countries have always tried to expand when the stocks that they exploited became decimated. They expanded geographically. And this expansion uh, brought us to Africa, to the Southern Ocean, and each country, Japan, uh, France, uh, Germany, and, 
and and uh, all of them participated in this monstrous effort, Russia. And some of them abandoned it uh, at some point because they couldn't get a young man to get six months on a boat, like in Japan. They now buy the fish to a large extent instead of go catch them. But some other countries continued, Russia, Spain, with heavily subsidized fisheries. And, and other countries got into the game. China is an example that started in 85 to, to deploy distant water fleet. This is uh, like a, a steamroller that went on resources everywhere. And that continues only because it is driven by subsidies. Essentially, you can fish in an area where nature is telling you, stop fishing. I, there's no more fish. You cannot make money. But if you get subsidies, you can block this voice that nature tells you, and you can continue operating. And this distant water fleet are all heavily subsidized. Now, let's get back to Canada. How did it specifically manifest itself, this expansion thing? Well, the, the founding of Canada is structured around uh, Europeans coming, including to fish for cod. And from 1500 uh, about to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, this uh, fishing for cod was mainly driven by Britain and France and other countries, but mainly these two. Then uh, a, f a local fishery using traps established itself. And then in the f starting in the 50s, and especially in the 60s, the trawlers came, the monster trawlers from Europe and Eastern Europe, Western Europe. And I, I was on board of one in, in 73, the first time I came to Canada. And it was like a like a monstrous, not a house, but a city block on 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 on, on the dragon net where you could put comfortably four or five jumbo jet, and and we fished in one kilometer depth, and in one kilometer depth, fish that they would never have been caught because earlier fishing method could not reach there. So we we reached into the the inner sanctum of a bank instead of. Gain, going to the teller, getting interest on our on a, on our capital, we we reached in the index in a sanctum of the bank and 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 went after the capital and basically a stock or that could produce about hundred to two hundred thousand tons a year, and did was reduced to almost nothing in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and so the fishery had to be closed. Now it produced ten thousand tons, five thousand tons. It has a minimal size. Now, did the fishery management agency, in this case mm -hmm. the DFO, rebuild that stock? No. It went into something else, into shrimp. The things that the cod had previously eaten and which now blossom, shrimp and crabs and things. And, and that is a form of expansion because you expand into new species, the new species that become available because the old species mm -hmm. are gone. I mean, I want to get back to the Newfoundland cod fishery itself because I think that's fascinating. And but I just you talk about subsidies and the impact of subsidies, and I'm just wondering if if that's the main culprit. How do we work with governments to end that? Is there? I mean, and are we seeing examples of that happening anywhere? Well, basically, the, if if you cannot make money with the, the bounty that nature produces, something is wrong with your operation, and among other things because you have fished too much. So you you stop fishing. And when I was a student, I was told so. I was told that fisheries auto-regulate because a fishery will 
stop exploiting a stock that is overexploited, that gives you a low catch per day or low catch per hour. And it should be like that. But uh, the moment you give subsidies, you allow this signal that nature gives you to be overridden, to be overheard. So you can make money fishing for subsidies. The subsidy maintain you fishing, and then uh, what, whatever you catch, if you catch anything, you can uh, uh, you can sell in and make a little bit of money. But uh, actually, you're fishing for subsidies, and these subsidies can take different forms. Um, uh, they they are cheaper fuel, they are cheaper loan on purchasing the boats, they are cheaper insurance policies, and so on. And they also uh, can be slavery at, on board that is tolerated or encouraged by your government. Uh, some mm-hmm. government, not necessarily Canada, encouraged this, but Thailand is is a case in point, and Taiwan, they reduced the cost of the mm-hmm. of the crew. That is a subsidy, and they they do pirate operation on the side, illegal fishing. All of these are acting like subsidies. Now, getting back to subsidies in Canada, the small scale fishers were, are subsidized by getting an insurance if they fish. I think ten weeks. Uh, then, then the rest of the year, they they get insurance. So, like unemployment insurance. That is a, a form of subsidization. Uh, I, I should add that it is not the small scale fishers that have destroyed the fishery, but the subsidies encourage them to continue being there and to to continue getting at the resource every time it it rebuild itself. So it it created a a situation where you cannot wait to rebuild the stock. You could not wait. And from 92 on, the fishery, there was a moratorium. Every time uh, a few cod found themselves in a bay, a so-called sentinel fishery was opened. This prevented the province from moving away from cod fishing altogether, which it should have done until the stock was rebuilt. We have just published a paper showing that if the fishing pressure had been maintained at the level it was in the 80s, Canada would still have this mm-hmm. big stock. The catch would be about 200,000 ton per year. It would be sustainable. 200,000 ton per year. Now, it's one-tenth or one-twentieth of that at best. So, the stocks have not been rebuilt. And this is off Newfoundland? Is Essentially, no. It's mm-hmm. not Canada okay. altogether. Uh, we have not differentiated between the different mm-hmm. stocks. But uh, there is another point that is important. They were for for to understand what happened to to the stock there were two fisheries essentially one fishery by small scale fishers the uh, from fishing from output and they don't they don't get far because they this is day fishing right so they, they can go only i don't know 50 mm-hmm. kilometers or so and and come back so uh, they were all around along around newfoundland and along labrador and they noted that they couldn't catch cod anymore because uh, because they couldn't reach the cod that were there. The remaining cod were collecting themselves in, in one of the other region of, of that broader region. The trawlers could get to this concentration. So the DFO, by deciding to track only the trawlers, tracked what seemed to be an abundance. But uh, actually, what the small-scale fishers were observing is that 
the, the distribution was contracting itself onto a few thousand tons of fish. And the decision to not listen to the small-scale fishers is a widespread decision that, that in all countries it, it is, the, because the catching power of the trawlers generates huge revenue and it generates all huge debts because you, you buy this boat and this translates into political capital. And so the fleet operator, uh, the owner of a big fleet, can speak to the minister, whereas, whereas the individual small-scale mm-hmm. fishers cannot. And, and they can speak only in, in confrontational mm-hmm. form. Uh, they will demonstrate and stuff. So uh, the process known as industry captures works fully in fisheries that the big owners or fleet can convince the minister that fisheries it's them. And so everybody listens to them and in this case use the data that they provide the trawlers and they could show that they catch. The catch of trawlers was maintained because they could follow the, the fish where they were. And the small-scale fishers could not follow them because they have a, a radius that was limited. So how do you break that cycle, though? Like, how do we, I mean, if you're, let's say we make you the global minister of fisheries for the entire world. How, how do you do it? Ah, I would have to talk with the other ministers in agriculture, in reselling the trade and so on, because we would have to make a coalition because this process of favoring the, the mm. big guys against the small guys is widespread ev- everywhere. It doesn't need a special fisheries explanation. You have it everywhere. The, the big Walmart or, or big shop owners and a small shop that sells things on a corner have also a differential yeah. access to political. I'm not talking about corruption, mm. incidentally. I'm not talking about corruption. Industry captures uh, function without corruption. It functions yeah. also with, but 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 industry captures takes place. It takes place because of a community of of expression, a community of goals. For example, DFO in the West Coast and a, I think on the East Coast also wants to encourage concentration in a fishery because they say it's easier to manage. In other words, instead of having hundred cats to herd, you have one tiger. But the tiger, you can't ride it. That's the point, right? So we don't want to hurt cat. We have a few right. tigers. But then, then the tigers run you. You right. cannot run them. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying, too. I mean, part of the trouble with change, obviously, is the human factor. And there's been people, communities fishing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's a way of life. And you know, how do you maintain that way of life? Or how do you end that way of life? But it sounds like that that's not even it because they've, in effect, they've already ended that way of life by moving to big industrial fishing anyway. Yeah, it could have been maintained, the, the, mm-hmm. that way of life, but it's not compatible with monster boats that can, that can make the catch that you make in a year in two hours. The, that doesn't, there is no relationship. So basically, you cannot have a happy coexistence of big and small operators, the population of cod that was accessible to down to 50 meters mm-hmm. with traps and stuff was a sustainable part of the population. If you like the, the cod that were stupid enough to come to the near the surface to be caught, that that 
stuff could have been exploited for for hundreds of years. It had been exploited for hundreds of years before by vessels fishing with lines and mm. dories from dories, right? But no, it, it was decided we will not work with with a teller in a bank. We will go to the treasure chest. We we go to the inner sanctum, and because we can take out everything mm-hmm. that we want, any fish yeah. stock that we want from anywhere in the world. There is no place that you cannot go. Before, there was the winter. It was depth. It was cold. It was distance from the shore. All of these things were limited, limiting factor. Now there is no limiting factors, none whatsoever. And even before, we had also the market. If you come up with too many fish, at the same time, they will rot because you could do that. Now we have infinite market for all for all purpose because you can freeze the catch and you can sell them in countries that that are insatiable appetite for fish. Mm-hmm. So if you were to look at looking forward, if we continue on this path, when will we stop having wild fish on our tables? But we have already stopped having wild fish. No way. Explain that. Uh, imagine the Brits. Before, they would have, uh, what is it, mm-hmm. fish and yeah. chips and stuff. They they don't have fishing ships the way they th- mm-hmm. think they do. Uh, before they was it was cod, and that is not anymore available. Then it was cod like fish. It also is not available. And now it's I don't know what they get when they <laughs> offer that. Uh, it's certainly not cod, and it's certainly not any other white fish. It's probably some concoction of of uh, fish from mm-hmm. elsewhere that are that are pressed into shape. You know surimi? Mm-mm, no. Surimi is uh, crab yeah. flesh uh, with K that is done by spraying skeleton of fish that you have mm-hmm. removed the fillet of to get um, the last fibers I've of uh, protein. And then you press it together and the, you offer as fake crab meat. So that is already <laughs> the fish that you do, you you get. That's what you eat. I have, I have seen my first surimi in France. It, it, it is crazy. Yeah. In the, the fish market or the, the immense wet market that provides fish mm-hmm. in France to Paris. I have one time visited it at three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock, and there was one cod, one <laughs> cod in, one cod in the, the box. The rest were fish, groupers and beautiful, colorful fish from the Indian Ocean. So what we have, in the same thing in Spanish markets I have seen, the, the supply is not anymore local. Same thing, in, if you go to Granville Island here, it's a beautiful place, uh, artistic, uh, there is all kind of uh, alternative shops selling little things that smell good. And you, you, you will also find fishmongers. Now, salmon mm-hmm. is from here. And oysters are from here. Everything else, all the fish on sale in this Granville Island yeah. fish market is imported. Imported from Norway, imported from New Zealand, imported from God okay. knows where. 50 years ago, you, you could have gotten fish from, from the Georgia Strait or the Pacific. So that, that is the point. Your question implies 
that something will happen. Well, something has already happened, but we adapt to it and therefore we don't notice. Lots of the fish we eat also comes from aquaculture. Catfish in the US, this horrible salmon that we get from BC, from Scotland, from Chile, and so on. And 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 so we, we think the the transition has already happened. The, I mean, this gets to the thing you're quite famous for, too, which is shifting baselines, right? Which we, we think we're doing fine, but not if you compare it 50 years ago, but then if you compare 50 to 100. I mean, can you explain what that concept is and, and how that plays into this? Well, basically, shifting baseline is, is an, I think, a, a good adaptation that humans, early humans had uh, of not remembering um, too much of the past. Because uh, earlier group of humans, uh, when they reach a certain critical size, somebody had to leave and go somewhere else. And they did. And uh, that's how we evolved in Africa. And then we moved all the way all mm-hmm. to Australia, Asia, Europe, and so on, and ended up uh, also in Americas. Basically, we had to make new homes all the time. And... And there would have been no point remembering, either either physiologically or mm-hmm. or culturally, uh, too much the past, uh, too much of the past, because we could never adapt. And and we can see we expect actually uh, to take a contemporary example. We expect immigrants to work yeah. on abandoning the hab- habits of the past uh, of the home country uh, because they live now in Canada, and their children do that. That is shifting baseline. This is a positive aspect of it. Now, the negative aspect of it is that if one of, of our activity or our activities in general have a negative impact on the environment and it goes over several generations, we have a problem knowing the extent of this damage because we tend to, to take seriously only the part that we can see that we have lived. So, a young person will will set, so to say, like uh, like a microphone themselves uh, in terms of the biodiversity that they experience at at the beginning of their conscious life, and then they would notice they would know the change. They become old, and they know when I was young, this and this was happening, but but they don't they do not recall what their parents setting was and and the parents don't recall the grandparents so for example young people uh, that may be very aware my student for example uh, they don't know insect <laughs> insect we have no insects around you can drive and there are no insects splashing on a windshield uh, i remember that uh, right insects splashing on a windshield when you made a long trip you had you had blood all over the and wings all over the all over the windshield the the student now the the young people now no, don't know that and so they they will never miss that right. that time on or they will never use it as reference and that that is shifting baseline it has positive effect it it, it helped us adapt the, we are an extremely adaptable and, and and successful species probably because of it but this adaptation is is deadly when it comes to uh, our impact on on the environment because we we accept really what is unacceptable 
and 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 then you get into absurd situation where people will not use data from the past. Uh, we have just published a, a paper that shows that most stock assessments, so that is evaluation of fisheries, um, most are, are done with uh, truncated data. There is some data that they have on the past that they don't use. And in the case of assessment of card, the the assessment are done without consideration of the catch that were done in the in a in a 16th and 17th century. They they use 20 years, 30 years mm -hmm. of data, and 30 years ago the stock had already yeah. collapsed. So what 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 meaningful inference can you draw from a collapsed stock? It would be like if if the Serengeti without elephant, without lions, without, and people would, would study the interaction of rabbits, uh, and, and termites and, uh, and mice on the Serengeti because, because, and they would not know that, uh, the big animal that had lived there. Right. So um, what I'm trying to hear from you, and I'm not sure I do is, is a sense of change happening and do you see any change happening or are we, because of these shifting baselines and everything else, are we, are we still sort of trapped in this cycle? The, the, you mean uh, the change is happening, but not in our head or, or economic structure. Yeah, that's the point. Uh, but I would say the, the measure of all things should be our recognition that we have to do something as, as a species, in, in fact, mm -hmm. about global warming. And, and yeah. uh, if we don't tackle that, then everything else become a, a, a footnote, and we we're not tackling that. Uh, you will see, Canada, for example, doesn't talk seriously about the impossibility of being a petrostate. Uh, Canada conceive itself as a a, a liberal petrostate. That's not possible. You cannot, right. you cannot, and you cannot have a progressive agenda on the climate and be a petrostate. And the sacrifice that Alberta and our economy would would have to experience—not sacrifice, but adjustment—they no nobody at present can conceive of them. The in in, in the science we, we we have an idea, and you the the best scientific mind in in the world. Uh, they they are they are plans to decarbonize our economy and. It could be done without without living standard being affected, actually. But waste would have to be avoided. You could not give subsidies to fuel, fossil fuel companies and so on. Mm -hmm. And no politician has the, the courage or... In fact, it might be impossible in democracies to do it. And in, in, in non-democracies, uh, the fossil fuel would have, they say, even more. So... So no, I don't think. I think we're in a in a serious mind, and um, mm -hmm. I think uh, we are in a serious mind because, really, because of shifting baseline. Because when I was a kid, also, you never would have people arguing against vaccination. People got mm -hmm. polio in God's name, and 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 vaccination was was perceived as what it was, which is a miracle that uh, solves giant problems. Well, now we have anti-vaxxers 
and and uh, which we didn't have before and mm-hmm. the change in our heads are difficult and in our political system the inertia is such that we might not get the curve before serious damage is done mm-hmm. and uh, I, we have survived the the heat wave here but yeah but the next ones because there will be next yeah. ones yeah. may have more than 600 dead in 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 BC and right. and the next ones can you imagine the heat wave and then they still talk about the tar sands you know they they, they still they still think that mm-hmm. that they have a future and we have a heat wave in Canada the highest temperature ever there is no really understanding of what's happening i don't i don't think that our population also can understand that and i'm not saying that as an elitist but I, as a person who understand that when you are working 10 hours or 8 hours a day maybe on two jobs because you you, you need to make mm-hmm. end meet you have other problem than li- listening to the scientists telling you that <laughs> that we need to decarbonize the economy but right. but uh, then who is in charge of doing that who is in charge of listening to the scientists the civil society the the ngo do they do mm-hmm. listen to that but then one doesn't listen to the ngos because the economy i i was in a economy task force uh, for bc and the two years ago and the representative of the forestry industry at the time the was not aware of global warming and uh, of what it could mean at the time the forests in california mm-hmm. were burning you, you know the, the all the way into los angeles and and I remember telling her, "Well, don't you think this will happen here? I, I, they had, they have no contingency plan. At the, now everything is burning in BC, and uh, that's it. Mm-hmm. Everything is burning, but but it has no implication for what." I remember a gentleman saying, "Oh, but we are dealing with this. We have a carbon tax. That's mm-hmm. magic thinking, right? They they think that a carbon tax." is solving the problem. <laughs> and now right. we have election and people are going to talk about the carbon tax which does mm-hmm. perfectly absolutely nothing uh, except make things more expensive uh, for some people but it will not have any effect whatsoever i mean to look at the impact of climate change too which uh I mean, you've talked certainly about what the impact on land and you know many hundreds of dead are in British Columbia. But what what are we seeing in terms of the impact on fish and fish stocks and and where where they are and where they're going to? Fish are extremely sensitive to temperature change because because they are not like us uh, who maintain a, a, the same temperature, thirty seven degree. That's it. And birds about 38, 40, uh, that's it. Uh, fish, uh, their temperature changes with the temperature of the water. But if the temperature increases, they need more oxygen. So the, 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 the breathing is accelerated when, uh, the temperature is high. On the other hand, there is less oxygen in the water when it's warm. So you have a decline of oxygen 
supply and you have an increase in demand. The result is that the fish would choke to death, uh, especially if it's big, because uh, the, gr the gills don't grow as fast as the volume, as the weight. Mm -hmm. So big fish have a problem. So you get two results. One result is that smaller fish, the fish are getting smaller. And, and we have written papers about that. The, the, the fish are gradually getting smaller that if the temperature increases. And the other change is that the fish are moving where the temperature is like it was before. Not where it is cooler, but like it was before. So in the Northern Hemisphere, it means moving toward the North Pole. And in Canada, it means that we are getting fish from California and the fish that we have in BC, for example, they move, uh, they move to Alaska. And, wow. and uh, East Coast, it means that we get in Quebec and, and in the Maritimes, we get fish from New England and, and uh, essentially, and, and later from Florida. And uh, mm -hmm. our fish move uh, north to the, the Baffin Bay and in the, into the Arctic. That is a movement that is happening on a grand scale. And in Australia, the opposite happens. Uh, in Sydney, they get fish that were before in Brisbane and uh, Darwin and Townsville and so on. So that is, uh, these movements uh, have been well described. They, they are happening and they're causing lots of problems everywhere because, because mm -hmm. uh, fish that were exploited by, again, by locally, uh, they will, they will be, all of a sudden they, they are 50 kilometers further north or south. And, mm -hmm. and then they exploited, they are available to another group and, uh, another country or another state. And it causes all kind of political problems and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and solving them, making new, new quota, new negotiation, new treaties takes time. By that time, they have, the fish are moved further and, and it, it, it is a mess. And our fishery management are not at all prepared to deal with that complexity because the tools that we have all imply that the stock is more or less in equilibrium and we change the equilibrium by having a bigger biomass or smaller biomass. And uh, the, mm -hmm. if the stock are not in equilibrium, but uh, in transit almost, uh, the mm -hmm. nothing nothing is true anymore. And the techniques that we use to assess the stock become enormously mm -hmm. complicated, unreliable, and conflict-ridden. So what gives you hope then? Hope, hope is not the operative work. If you think of Churchill in June 40, uh, Dunkirk and this period, the, the thing was not hope versus not hope or optimism versus pessimist. The, the thing is you're faced with something that you don't like, that shouldn't be. And so you do all you can against it, irrespective of whether you're going to make it or not, because the thing you don't want is really an abhorrent, uh, awful thing. And, and you, you fight against it on the beaches, in the hills, everywhere, from the air, because this thing is not good and it has to be fought. Irrespective of whether you know whether you're going to win or not. Because what one thing is clear, and I have been a witness of several 
political crisis where a dictator, Marcos in the Philippines, where I was, uh, I've lived a long time there, seemed very strong. And then he was overthrown. And it was obvious that he would be overthrown a week later. He, he shrunk. And uh, problems, once they are resolved, you, you ask yourself, why was it ever a problem? Think of smoking. When a few decades ago, I, ne I never smoked personally, but smoking appeared to be un mm. invincible. The companies, the, the smoking companies were huge. They were, they were not going to be beaten. And now they, the ashtrays are gone. Yeah. And so problems appear to be monstrously big. And then they resolved and they were not that big. And so hope or optimism is not really the operating word because mm -hmm. you would be an, an opportunist to pick up course where you, where you know you're going to win only. Right. We fight. Everybody fights, for example, for the environment because we don't want to lose it. We don't want mm -hmm. to lose the resource that we have. We don't want to lose... And that's what we fight for. And then, and then, if we if we manage, we manage. And if we don't, then everybody lose. But you don't ask yourself, what fight can I win? And involve yourself only in those. You you mentioned Churchill at the start there, and I also think of uh, Nelson Mandela, who knew a yes. thing or two about impossible situations, and he said, "Everything's impossible until somebody does it." And and Mandela is a, another example that one could bring. The, that this regime would be would be brought down bloodlessly was unthinkable, and mm. yet it happened. Mm -hmm. And then, in retrospect, you say, "Well, it, it required only somebody like Mandela." <laughs> it it is right. it is wonderful. It is if if I get back to the word hope, this is the reason why one can fight because things are not predictable because one doesn't know. And because one doesn't know, one can not say it's not going to work. So maybe the hopeful thing is that our society does produce these leaders through time. And yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Before I let you go, I have one last question, and it's one I asked all my guests here. And it's about a favorite place you have in Canada. It might be like a happy place in your head or somewhere you love to go visit just makes you calm or just some spot in Canada that... Yeah, it gives you good feelings. Well, uh, okay, you you will choose from several, I mean, two or three. Go for it. One of my favorite places was Granville Island, which I mentioned before. Uh, I lived, uh, the first years that I lived in Canada, I was all by myself. My wife was still in the Philippines. And um, I went there every, every Sunday, and they are, have different shops and stuff, and I read the New York Times, and eat so-called ethnic food. And this was my favorite place for a long, long time. Uh, another beautiful place is uh, also in BC is um, the Stevenson Harbor, uh, which, uh, which is one little fishing town that we have close to Vancouver. And, and, before, and one cannery, the huge cannery, has a salmon cannery has been rehabilitated to into a museum and i i go there very often with a student pre-covid time uh, 
and show them mm -hmm. the exploitation of First Nation, of Chinese immigrant, of woman that took place there and and how this these things, horrible things were overcome gradually. This is a, a beautiful place and then and then we walk along the the pathways that have been made for tourists and and there are people playing music in front of sign that uh, that says they shouldn't and and uh, this is all very nice um these are beautiful places beautiful those sound lovely i'd love to see them both and so daniel Polly, thank you so much for coming on the explore podcast you're very welcome i hope you enjoyed that conversation if you did you know the drill please rate review and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes you can follow Canadian Geographic on social media at CanGeo. I'm on Twitter at MacGuffinDavid and on Instagram at David.MacGuffin. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David MacGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just a, a fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left that. Simpson about June the 10th with the Fur Brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by ten voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that Inuit or history is very strong. Yeah, we flew all over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 dives or so. We had shrimp fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada.